This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I was invited to this lab and uh, the scientist um, showed me this program he had been working on where he spoke to a computer and it did something and I was a whoa this is crazy kind of moment for me and I thought I totally want to take this thing home there's so much I can do so many cool things I can build Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. Plus, don't miss our regular how-to episodes where we dissect a specific career issue or problem. In fact, this is your chance to let us know what other topics you'd like us to explore. Email us at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and we'll choose one of your suggestions for our last how-to episode of 2018. Indeed we will. Now for this week's episode. We're so excited to bring you this week's guest, Kriti Sharma. She's a leading global expert in AI and its impact on society and the future of work. Kriti grew up in Rajasthan in India. She didn't have access to a computer at home. So she built one herself, as you do. She quickly followed that with her first robot when she was 15. Wow. Now, listeners, you might be thinking to yourselves around here, "Uh uh-oh, a tech prodigy. I'm not going to be able to relate to this. But hang on a minute. Critty is also warm, funny, and down to earth. So stay listening. She certainly is. And today, Critty applies her AI and tech expertise to solve real global issues from productivity to education to domestic violence. She's recently been named a UN Young Leader. She features in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for advancements in AI. Yes, she's young and was included in the Recode 100 list of key influences in technology last year alongside Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg. Just a few slightly well-known names, hey? Absolutely. Now, in this episode, you'll hear how Kriti's upbringing in India has shaped what she's doing today, how a cat with a jetpack has helped her tackle gender bias. Wow. You heard it here. Her thoughts on the power of AI, both for good and bad, and her experience of being invited to meet the Obamas and why it was life-changing. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with the talented and delightful Kriti Sharma. Kriti Sharma, welcome to Sydney and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you so much for having me here, guys. Total pleasure. We're really excited that we get to do this face-to-face here in Sydney. 
Critty, for our listeners, you're an international expert on artificial intelligence and you seem to have a lot going on. How would you briefly summarize what you do today? Well, I focus all of my energy on solving very difficult problems using technology. And it's not always about AI, but it is about using the right tool for the right problems. The areas that we are focusing on are using technology to solve issues in education, in women's rights, in productivity for small businesses. And it's really a very exciting time for me. Now we are at a stage where I can take the skills I've learned for the last 15 years of my life and apply to some of the most pressing problems that I've always wanted to solve. And it's not just about making people click more ads or getting them digitally addicted or helping hedge funds make more money using technology, but solving real world problems. Which is really so heartening to hear and we're definitely going to explore those. But before we do, you know, your interest in computing, I gather, started quite a long time ago. How did it all begin? I grew up in Rajasthan in in India and I was also always very curious about what technology could do. When I was quite young, I built my own computer because I thought, why not? So I read a book and figured out how to do it. It costed $50. It wasn't an Apple Mac, as you can imagine. And how old were you when you did that? Um, I was still just a teenager, yeah. And that was quite fun. I thought, well, I can build a computer. Now let's build a robot. So I built a robot. That's when I was a little bit older, 15, 16. It was really exciting for me because I got to create things myself and learn on my own at my own pace, which was really, really cool. And I'm curious, though, what made a 15-year-old girl in Rajasthan want to build a computer? Just reading. It was at the time when we didn't have any code clubs around me at all, even the concept of it. I didn't have internet, but it was more about reading and problem solving. And I thought, this looks like an interesting problem to solve. And I'd like to see what's underneath these machines. And I could create one on my own. And let's see how that goes. How prevalent were computers? Did your family have one at that point in time? No, we had a lab in school. It was probably like 10 computers for a school with thousands of kids. Uh, it wasn't the most usable thing. It was also back in the days when these machines were huge because <laughs> they didn't have that much processing power. And then I got very, very lucky and got invited to a government space research lab when I was 16. And I saw what would be now an Alexa or a Siri with voice recognition systems. Just for your listeners, just so they know, I'm not a dinosaur years old. I'm, I'm 30. So <laughs> whatever I'm telling you is just 15 years ago. <laughs> um, it's so, a little bit sickening, listeners, how much she's accomplished in the last 15 or so years. But hey, continue. Please. <laughs> I just wanted to clarify that. But uh, yes, yeah, so I was invited to this lab and uh, the scientist um, showed me this program he had been working on where he spoke to a computer and it did something. And I was a, whoa, this is crazy kind of moment for me. And I thought, I totally want to take this thing home. There's so much I can do, so many cool things I can build. But I couldn't take it home because it was the size of this room. (laughs) And that was the early exposure to AI in in some ways, I'd say, to voice recognition systems where computers understand what we see, what, what we say, and they respond. At that time, I remember thinking it would be so cool if at one point, at some point in my life, I could have one of my own. And it just sounds silly now because we've had these devices on our tiny phones for over 10 years. So it happened way faster, sooner than I thought. 
It's amazing. It sounds as if you got that sort of view into the future at that space lab. Yeah, it was very much like that. And this is why I do a lot of work with young people these days, because a lot of things we show them, this is not even from the future, it's from the present, but the way they solve problems with it is almost like they can see the potential of that technology a lot better than grown-ups. I think kids are better than grown-ups. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then you went on to university in India, didn't you? That's right. And what did you study? I did engineering and computer science. Uh, it was a four-year course in India, and that was really cool. I did a bunch of research projects on the side and did some what would be early versions of cloud computing and parallel processing now. I was very fascinated by space research. I remember spending summers just collecting data in uh, large laboratories with radio astronomy, optical observatories on top of mountains with no lights on. It was just fascinating. And, and to be able to see that amount of data from different celestial and different space bodies and processing it at that scale was, uh, was just very cool for me. <laughs> Sounds incredible. It really does. And then you went on to go to St. Andrews That's in right. the UK, didn't you? And I, I think you, didn't you land at sort of some ridiculous <laughs> time of the year in Scotland coming from yeah, India? Yeah, yeah. The day I landed in Edinburgh, it was eight degrees there and it was 48 in New Delhi when I left. And that was one of my moments of, oh gosh, what have I done to myself? And it got worse. It went minus 15 in Scotland with um, 50 miles per hour wind. And it was a difficult year <laughs> weather-wise uh, and the shock to the system. But um, I, I studied computer science there at the university and it was uh, an incredible experience. It was one of those moments where I made some choices in my life which were quite different to what I would have done. For example, I, I went to St. Andrews to do my master's, but I would got accepted to a PhD default program at Oxford, which I always wanted to do. I was very happy but by the time I finished my master's, I realized probably I'm quite ready to go into the real world. And it's a difficult decision to say no to one of the you know, most amazing universities in the world. And my family are quite academic. They really encourage education for people. So it was an interesting time to make that choice. But looking back, I think I'm glad I did. It sounds like it. That must have been quite a challenging time. How did you work your way through that and get to the decision that you did? It was about what I really wanted to do. And it's okay to realize that your hopes and your dreams change over time as well. That things that you always thought you wanted, you might realize that oh, actually I want to try something else and it's okay to do that and not be so hard on yourself and be open to possibilities. And it was uh, uncertain. It's like, well, on one hand, it's one of the best programs in the world that I really wanted to. And on the other, I don't know what the new unknown opportunities might be. And I decided to take a chance and it's fine. And I'm sure at some point I will do that PhD, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, it sort of sounds as if you're the the type of person who can see the positive in all directions. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And I, I believe probably comes from my family. My dad is very Zen. <laughs> Growing up, it was this mindset. And I, I think some of it comes from uh, my parents are Hindus. And it comes probably from, from that kind of cultural background where they think everything is, is good. If you do good deeds, you'll be fine eventually. And everything has a reason why it happens. And I think of parts of it that I, I learned and adopted in my life that it's okay, even though it's uncertain or you're doing something you probably haven't done before. 
There are some cultural challenges too in that, for example, in Rajasthan where I grew up, the minimum legal age for girls to get married is 18, but the average is 16. It's a real shame. It's a challenge that a lot of young girls are pushed into early child marriages, some as young as you know, five or six years old. Was it ever on the cards that you may have been married off, so to speak, when you were 16? Or was that just your parents really were passionate about education and would never have gone down that path? I don't think my parents would ever have, but it was not unusual to see that around you. And I, I think it's also so cultural that for communities or people going through it, it's the norm. They don't even think there's anything strange about it. And I'm seeing a lot of patterns in some of the social justice work I do now where I can see similarities to where when I was growing up in that world, I just thought this is how life is. But I guess I always talk to my parents where they really empowered all of their children to do whatever they wanted. I'm pretty sure even today they are fielding off arranged marriage options for me uh, somewhere in India so I can build algorithms. <laughs> Thank goodness for them. <laughs> it sounds as if you've really understood what amazing opportunity that you've had and now you're looking back on it, you can see what you have and now you want to give back. I do. And I am really very, very grateful that I get to make my choices. And I remember as, as as a young girl, one of the early first things my parents told me, they never told me to do specific things. And we they had a very, it's a very hipster parenting attitude <laughs> in many ways. But um, it was one thing they did tell me, which was not to walk out alone outside the house on the street. And it's just not a very safe place in many ways, it still isn't, but at that time, it was even harder. It wasn't a safe place to walk out. And it, was, uh, it didn't make much sense, but I thought, okay, if they're saying it, it must mean something. And even when you get older, it's not the easiest thing to do. Women's safety is a major issue in northern India. You know, harassment, all kinds of assaults is quite common. And I just feel that in that environment where people, where they have to follow certain constraints and rules even to go outside of the house for me to go to places and travel around and do the work I do is a privilege in in many ways and I don't think my work around uh, work on giving back is essentially giving back I don't think of it that way and I never did it was um, just very obvious it's like well there are problems that exist there are solutions that I might have, and I'm by no means claiming that I'm going to solve women's safety issues, for example, but I could play a part in making things better. And so why wouldn't I? That's a great way to look at things. Uh, sometimes people say I'm a social change agent or somebody who's who's an activist who's solving problems and, and or philanthropist even, and it's don't think I am any of those fancy things. I just do some stuff that I'm good at to solve problems that I want to solve. It's just really quite simple. It feels like a, a great time to, to talk about more about the actual examples of what you're doing now because what's happened, if I get this right, is your corporate career has segued just recently in the last year or so to, to be sort of part-time corporate and then quite a lot of your time in social endeavors. And you, I believe, were named a United Nations Young Leader just a few months ago. So what are one or two examples of the social projects that you're doing where you're bringing the benefits of technology to bear to help solve that problem? 
So let's start by carrying on with the example I was talking about safety. When I was talking about how I saw people be feeling so unsafe just at their doorstep, there was an even bigger issue I discovered later in my life when I lived in South Africa in Johannesburg for work for a few months. And that was the prevalence of violence at home. It was to me growing up in a very loving environment with amazing parents. it, It was one place I felt very safe at. And I saw how prevalent abuse at home was in in those communities. In South Africa, one in three women face violence, physical, sexual, emotional, control, financial at home. And it's a norm. There's a lot of victim blaming. There is a lot of uh, let's accept the way things are because this is life. There's outrage and anger too. And there's some amazing organizations doing incredible work for several years. But I saw an opportunity to make it easier for people to ask for help when they are in these difficult situations or when it's too embarrassing or there's too much shame or stigma around telling someone that you're being abused at home from your own partner. So to solve that, we've created Rainbow, who's a companion powered by AI, and it has unbiased, non-judgmental conversations with people. The way it works is you interact with it on your phone, you chat with it just like you would chat with a friend. It would help you understand early signs of abuse, of what's healthy and what's unhealthy in a relationship. It can route you to services and people who can help. And can tell you stories, immersive, personalized stories of people who've been on empowering journeys. And this is so powerful because it was one of those ideas that just emerged, not because I have a bunch of tech and I want to apply it to solve a problem. It was, here is a problem. And the problem is one in three women are facing abuse, yet the reported numbers are tiny they're embarrassingly small and the first time a woman actually goes to ask uh, goes and asks for help from the authorities or the police even after being brutally assaulted is the 35th time on average on average wow on average the 35th incident when they actually go anywhere between five to ten percent of the cases ever get reported so they're suffering in silence and we believe technology is a means to make it easy for them to ask for help without dealing with victim blaming, which is what did you do wrong Do wrong to provoke this behavior or why don't you just take care of your partner? Or yeah, I sat through some of those sessions and spoke with women in shelters and sometimes there's even this culture that, oh, if you were married, it wouldn't happen, right? All kinds of excuses that people have. But what we found is when we gave them an unbiased, non-judgmental support tool, where it's just as easy as chatting with a friend, they open up. They're asking for help. We're seeing huge engagement rates. So here you are, you're London-based, a UN young leader. How did this project in Johannesburg come about? I used to live there and I saw um, a lot of issues on the ground and it's funded by Sage Foundation, who um, Sage is the company that I used to run AI for and I still have a leadership role in AI for them. And they have a huge presence in South Africa and we were talking about it. And Debbie Wall, who's the founder of the head of Sage Foundation, she was in South Africa when I wasn't there. And uh, she was talking to a bunch of women from around the office and other people at a breakfast and they were talking about yeah, this is violence. This is how it happens. This is normal. And 
I think she was the one who connected the dots. She said, well, I think we can do something quite differently and let's figure it out, how we can use technology to make it not acceptable. And it was also at the same time the Me Too movement had kicked off, reignited itself, and there was a lot more openness around solving these problems. But I was wondering when, um, you know, I needed data to build models and do cool stuff, but it didn't exist. You couldn't find a single place where you could have all that data to mine. And it's, it's it sounds a bit ridiculous because all of our online footprint is in one place. All the interactions we do is available. I'm pretty sure every all the emails and everything is, is in a centralized place. But to solve social justice issues, we just don't have that information in one place. And I realized that I think technology has been a great enabler for the Me Too movement to be, be more than a hashtag. It could start solving problems. And that's how the project started. It sounds to me that you sort of jump into really big, hairy problems that you want to solve. How sort of qualified do you feel when you jump into those problems? Oh, always deeply unqualified. For every job, every project I've done, I think I could argue I've never done it before. I've never done things I've done in the past, always tried to solve new problems. I do have some underlying skills that I keep working on. And it's in my world, it's really important to keep doing that because change is really fast. The way I was taught technology or AI in university just a few years ago is nowhere near to how we create technology today. So I have to keep myself always updated. And I think there's a lot of value in collaboration. So for instance, I'm doing a lot of work in education and also in healthcare and women's rights. And I know nothing about these areas, but the key there is to work with people who do. It's shocking that when I studied computing and engineering, we weren't encouraged to speak to humans. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like, in a weird, strange way, it is acceptable and it's it's kind of celebrated to be a nerd and it's okay to not have any social skills. (laughs) But it's actually Um, not, is it? It's not okay. Yeah, no, it's not. um, I know I'm generalizing and stereotyping massively, but it's an issue. And I've had to work hard on being able to communicate with people and and just reach out, even if it's not an area I understand much about. And I found most people very open to to help, to collaborate, to change things together. And you have to learn to speak their language and just really empathize with what they're going through. I also think the tech industry could do a better job at communicating what we do. I go to a lot of tech events where people say, what I've built is super smart. It's a black box. It's so good. I can't even explain. And I just think, what? That's not okay. (laughs) It's not okay to say, oh, we've built a system. We can't even explain how it makes those decisions or... Oh, we didn't think about potential impact of our tech on society or you know, in some cases democracy and uh, and it's just unacceptable. And I think the way I, I approach it is if I don't know enough about something, I ask people who do and just say, this is what I can ha- offer and these are problems I, can, I would like to solve. And in general, I think if you're not an evil person, you're most likely going to be okay. <laughs> people will help. You've been working in what is seen as a very sort of male, not white, but a male-dominated industry. What bias have you experienced, if any? Happens all the time. There is a shortage of women in technology, about, I think, around 17% is where we are, which is 
terrible, mm. <laughs> which is unacceptable, really. Seventeen uh, percent is awful. In senior leadership and tech roles, it gets even smaller, as you can imagine. I actually want to share a personal incident with you guys, if I may. And this is my wake-up moment on how bad things can be. Just for background for people, I have two degrees in computer science. And I also, like many other developers, I contribute code on and collaborate with people online and share my knowledge. And we work on code. It's open source. And a lot of technologies that we use are open source, like Android. We work on projects together. I realized when I was logging in with my face and my name, my code would get rejected a lot more. I would get asked questions like, what makes you qualified to work in AI? What makes you think you know AI? And I don't have a PhD in computer science or in, in AI, so I'm kind of a fake AI person anyway. So that used to happen a lot. And I thought, okay, how about, I wonder what, I don't know what the reason is, why this is happening. I think I know what I'm doing. So I changed my profile to that of a cat with a jetpack on it because I'm cool. <laughs> and now those patronizing comments went away. My work got accepted a lot more often and I got taken seriously. I have two degrees in computer science. I've been building technology since I was 13 years old and I had to hide my gender to get my work taken seriously. And then it gets worse because I thought it was just me and maybe an isolated, siloed um, experience. But then I did some more research. I found that this is a systemic issue. Code written by women, when it's known it's written by women, is, is rejected 17% more often. And when they hide their gender, it's more or less the same. I was talking to a bunch of other girls in tech, a lot of other women, and they were sharing how many of them blog online with male personas just so they can get their work taken seriously. That we have a real problem. That really is astonishing. Yeah, you know, we have seen stories like Susan Fowler from yeah. Uber when she shared what happened. And when I read it, it was bad and my heart sank a little, but I wasn't shocked because I know this happens every day. So you talked about then an online example when you were contributing code online and you had to resort to a cat with a rocket pack on the back to get taken, if you like, equally seriously. But how does that play out for you in the real world where you presumably don't walk around with a cat's mask or a rocket pack on your back? How do you overcome, you know, especially I'm sure you must work with older men quite a bit, you know, how do you deal with that? I didn't used to think it was a thing until someone highlighted it to me and they said, you know, there's like women in tech is a real problem. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> there is the problem because uh, you get so used to that world, right? When I went to engineering school and did my undergrad and my master's, we very few girls in the class and you just kind of learn to live with it until somebody mentioned it. was the first time it was mentioned to me was um, I won the Google Women in Engineering Award, which was for my academic research when I was an undergrad student. And I got invited to the Google office and they were talking about uh, a lot of the work they were doing. And I started, it all started to make sense that this is a systemic issue. It's not just me in my classroom or me on my projects. This is happening around the world. And then I started to recognize and realize this is an actual issue and that work needs to happen around that. The way I personally deal with it is I think I still have a lot of room to grow. I've been quite fortunate in that I have had couple of really good mentors, not official mentors who haven't had formal mentors, but it's more 
people who've seen my work and they believe in what I'm doing. And I've learned to speak up. And if I see something is not right, I just say it's not right. It's not okay that you dismiss me or you mansplain. And I think it does help, but I don't have the perfect answer to tell you how to fix it. In my personal life, I do call things out when I see it. I think organizations today are a lot more aware of this than they were a few years ago. So that has helped massively. And I encourage other people to do the same. And I work a lot with younger people to give them those opportunities. So at least they shouldn't go through it. What about ageism? Because you're quite young and we've heard a number of young women say to us recently that no matter how relevant and helpful their ideas may be to the business scenario, sometimes they get dismissed simply because they're like you, young and 30. Yeah, I took turning 30 quite hard, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, honey, it's going to get a lot worse from here in. (laughs) Yeah, uh, sometimes I don't even know which box I'm ticking today. (laughs) You can tick quite a few. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. I also sometimes get asked to, quite often, actually almost the time, the youngest person in the room. And people would say, you are a young person. You can tell us what these millennials want. And I say, on behalf of my entire generation, (laughs) here are my views. I think there's recognition that we need more younger people to represent in businesses and decision-making in politics, where we have a huge vacuum. There really is a need. There's a lot of work happening now with organizations, and I'm sure you guys know it a lot more than I do, around encouraging young people to have a voice and get access to information and transparency. So that's helping. I think young people do get the added advantage of they know stuff that they don't know much about. So <laughs> sometimes you can play the millennial card. I'm a millennial, this is how we do things. But in all seriousness, yes, there is an issue. Yes, there is age-based discrimination happening around the world, and it is very unfair. And that's part of the work that we're doing with the UN Young Leaders Program, which is to bring young leaders and give young people an equal voice in some of these issues and in creating a fairer world. I would love to see companies having a zero-tolerance policy to ageism. That would be quite cool. And that's both to young people as well as, of course, to old people. Excuse me, older people. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just saying in general, it shouldn't matter how on paper, what's your age, what's your gender, what's your background. It's it's ridiculous. It's 2018. We shouldn't have to talk about these things anymore. It should have all been sorted. I'd like to just ask you, you mentioned that you're sitting in the room when you're the youngest person sitting there. How do you get through that voice in your head that may be there, it may not be, that sort of says, I'm the youngest person in the room? I think over the course of time, I don't notice it that much until someone mentions it or until I start to see things differently. I start noticing what I think differently to others and I bring that perspective. It's in business scenarios, good companies, they've started to realize they really need that opinion. They need that voice. Millennials are the largest working population today in in the United States and many parts of the world. India, for example, has the youngest population anywhere ever. There's a lot more recognition companies need to hear, and good ones do. Bad ones, they're, if they're not doing it, then either try to change it or get out. <laughs> you know, and that's that's pretty much how I think. Um, in terms of that voice in my head, I don't hear it that often because I've just learned to 
realize that I'm good at what I do. I always need to keep learning. And I've found a network of people who would help me get there. And I, I help others too. And what do you think, if you, if you had to summarize, because some people would say, oh, I want what she's got. I want to be able to bottle that. What is it that you think makes you able to not second guess yourself, not question yourself, but to feel confident that you you are good at what you do and to speak out and do what you do? I think about what's the worst that can happen. And the worst that can happen would be, I know people don't like what I'm saying, and that's okay. At least I get to raise my voice. And if you do it in the right way, if you understand where other people are coming from, you empathize with them and you use information to make your point and you look at not just isolated incidents, but also systemic problems, um, then I think we, we go much farther. And that's probably how I do it. I don't have one single answer as like the best life advice I could give you. I've never been good at those things. But I'd say it gets better over time. And when you see something wrong, just highlight it, call it out, and you'll be surprised by how many people accept that feedback and they work on it. And presumably, because this is what I think I've found, is you know, the more you speak out, the easier it gets. Oh, totally. You get so good at it. <laughs> yeah, I'm good at it now. I can just call it when I, when I see things. Yeah. So step into the discomfort. Yeah, and be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You seem like such a positive, confident person, but there must be days or times where Kriti Sharma feels either defeated or pessimistic or challenged because something hasn't gone the way you wanted to. How do you deal with that and how do you pick yourself back up? It happens all the time. On podcasts, I'm a more and more cheerful person. <laughs> and uh, like, in all seriousness, uh, yeah, it happens all the time. Things go wrong. But a lot of the work I'm doing in education and health and women's rights and ethical tech is really, really hard. You're going against the system. You're breaking barriers every day. And it's, it's really hard. But I really like two things. One, I like to look at the end goal that I would like to achieve. And sometimes I don't even know where I'm going, but I kind of have a vague idea that this is the problem I want to solve. And I, I try to visualize it and think about it. And second, the people around me, they give me so much, so much energy. And it's important to surround yourself with like-minded people with good attitude. And they show you like interesting stuff. For example, my team would bring me, we look at how the products and the work we do is actually impacting people. And when we see a woman getting the help that she needs in crisis in a country where it's unacceptable, it's it's not always easy for them to seek help. And I see that actual work that uh, the way we are helping them, it gives me so much power and strength and I keep going. Yeah, and also have fun while you're doing it. So you've got so many things going on at the moment, it seems. Where do you see yourself in five years time? I used to say I want to you know, keep working in technology and help billions of people. Quite recently, I've started to realize that there is a real need for young people with different perspectives to get involved in policymaking. It's a new territory for me because I don't know very much about it. But um, I see myself in five years' time not just solving problems one at a time that I'm doing right now, but also look at things in a systemic way. And that's how you create equity because um, and equality. For instance, I teach children, their 12 to 16-year-olds, how to create AI. And the work they do is awesome because they're so creative and their imagination is just beautiful. But I can only reach a few. 
And if I wanted to give every child that opportunity, it's not good enough to say, oh, that's not my job. It's a politician's job. It's a government's job. I think we should all get involved in policy. And I think in five years' time, I would have grown up more. <laughs> I would have learned a lot more real-life experiences, and I could. I hope to contribute to that system. Wow, that's a big dream. And it's very exciting that somebody like you is going to go into government because we need more people like you there. Um, Not that Crudy said she was going into government. Yeah. Specifically. Oh, yeah, sorry. Into policy, sorry. So I let me keep say that very again. Big. Let me say I that could again. run for office. I could. I, d- I couldn't. I did it here first. <laughs> um, I, I think it's great. I got first introduced to it for the first time when um, the House of Lords in the UK, they ran an inquiry on AI and its impact on society. And I was invited as as they should give testimony it wasn't Donald Trump versus James Comey style. <laughs> it wasn't broadcasted on national TV. But it was really, really cool to be able to bring real perspective of what I see in my everyday work and think about how we could scale it to every organization and every person. And it again goes back to the point that the technology industry is very one-dimensional. It trains you to think in a certain way. Not always, but most of the times. And never ever thought I would talk to 15 people in the house about how we can do things and get those recommendations heard and made. And that was really, really empowering. And just last week, I ran a session with some MPs in the UK on the education policy for young people and the future of work. And that, again, was a very different way of doing things. So um, it is exposing me to a new world um, and UN being a great, great platform for advocacy as well. It's important that we think of the work we do and, and focus on scaling up. I think if there's one thing I want the people to take away is, is think about scaling and, and have that dream. So even if whatever project you're doing, whatever you're doing, think of how you could, and we, we have an issue with, you know, with the agile and lean startup methodology, too many little things going on everywhere as a society, and that's okay. But we also need to look at good work and scaling it to everyone to benefit a lot more people. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great way to, to be thinking. We've really explored all sorts of areas today. You've talked about the fact that you've had a couple of mentors, but who have been your real influences and role models in life? I share a life-changing event with you guys. So last year, I got invited to meet the Obamas after they left office and I just think it was one of the most incredible moments of my life. I met President Obama and Michelle Obama because of the work I've been doing in ethical technology at a time where I think it's fair to say we have some issues in the way decisions are being made. It was just really empowering to see how you can make an impact and be a good person at the same time. And that the fact that they took all the time to help people like myself lift up the good work we're doing I really valued it a lot to to be able to see how you can be humble, you can do the right thing, you can help people at different levels in their lives and uh, have them see things differently. So to me, it was a life-changing moment in many ways. And the work that leaders can do to help others lift up their work and have them think differently. And some of the, the, the points I made specifically around policy and scaling up I had never thought of it until that moment, um, until I started to see, well, you could create, you could impact healthcare systems for countries, or you could make a difference to women's safety or 
children's rights around the world or education policies. And that, that was quite refreshing for me to see. It's very different to my day-to-day world and people I meet every day. <laughs> but um, it, was, uh, it, it taught me a lot. It was the moment that changed a lot in my life. It sounds like that moment for you or that time for you actually has been instrumental almost in reshaping how you see your identity. Uh, it reshaped in how I think my work can influence. I used to think you build cool tr- products and you launch a tech thing and people will use it and you'll make their lives better and that's good. And that meeting, well, I talked specifically about the Obamas because, you know, you should. <laughs> but um, in, in reality, the actual, the, the thing I loved the most was the other people in the room and they were doing incredible things. And it's, it doesn't have to be always face to face. You can read about it. I, I love reading and books inspire me a lot. Also, when, when I read books about people's lives, it's just also learned the kind of person I don't want to be <laughs> sometimes and who I want to be. And so it could be reading. It could be meeting people. It could be hanging out in your local community and just listening to people's stories and associating yourself with them. I have also made a rule that these days I don't speak specifically at AI or tech conferences all the time because I think it's very important for people to collaborate across disciplines. So I do that as an exception to the rule. Most of my time I speak at or meet people from very different backgrounds, from civil society, from government, healthcare finance, whatever it may be, because it opens up your horizons and your brain, your mind to look at the possibilities that that we can achieve. Also, I've learned to be uncomfortable with not having a clear path. Because I don't know exactly what's going to happen in my life in the next, you know, five years or 10 years, but it's okay to give yourself the time to experiment. And there's so much change happening in the world today that we got to be okay with, with living with that, with that change. And that uncertainty. Yeah. Kriti, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and your story and your experience. It's been such a pleasure. How would our listeners find out more about you and the types of projects that you're working on? Yeah, uh, firstly, thank you so much for having me, guys. It's uh, it's awesome um, to find out more about my work. I think Twitter is the best way to reach out. My direct messages are open. I, I promise to answer everyone, but uh, I do my best, um, and you'll most likely get a human response. <laughs> <laughs> um, my Twitter handle is at Sharma underscore Kriti, S-H-A-R-M-A underscore K-R-I-T-I. Okay, um, we'll so put it yeah. on our website. Yeah, that's easier. So just reach out to me on Twitter, and sometimes I post about what I do, and if you have any questions ideas collaboration quite open to that or i can route you to someone who can help fantastic well once again thank you so much and and enjoy the rest of your trip in sydney and we'll hopefully see you soon thank you so much you know my overwhelming reaction after this conversation with critty was relief Relief that we have someone here who's a leader in the space and she's determined to use AI for good. Plus, I had a huge relief that she totally has inclusion and breaking down bias on her radar as she's doing all this work and writing all those algorithms. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. 
And let's hope Critty really inspires many more people like her because we seriously need them. Indeed we do. In fact, on that note, stay tuned for an artificial intelligence-focused special episode from us early next year featuring Critty and another AI expert, Mari Johnson. We'll explore what AI really is, where you can expect to see it being increasingly used, and how to keep yourself future-proofed. So stay tuned for that. On another topic, don't forget to let us know what career-related issues or challenges you'd like us to cover in our last how-to episode for the year. Email us your ideas by the end of November to hello at don'tstopusnow.co. For now, see you here in two weeks' time when we meet the web psychologist, Natalie Nahai. Can't wait. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.